Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson vill jag så bra som mig. Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores! Carlson. Yes, Carlson. welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by a guy who's never had a doubt about who the number one overall pick would be when it comes to Montreal Canadiens beat writers. I am your host, Elon Dubrowski, <laughs> and with me, super stoked for this interview. I've been waiting for this all summer long. It is the editor-in-chief from the Athletic Montreal, or uh, the Athletique Montreal, depending on what language you speak. It's our good friend Arpon Basu. Welcome back to the show, Arpon. Thanks, Alain. It's good to be here. It's been a while. So I'm happy uh, I'm happy we could connect here. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming. Yeah, last time I talked to you was back in May 2022. So it was during the COVID break before the Habs like, went in and defeated Pittsburgh in that surprise mm-hmm. upset in like the qualifying round. And I was listening back to that interview. We talked a lot about Tatar, Deneau, Max Domi, <laughs> Shea Weber, <laughs> Jeff Petrie. Like, it was like a whole other team. We did discuss uh, Suzuki and Caulfield uh, right. uh, at the end. Yeah, and you were, you were very high on Suzuki and you've been proven right so far. You also, by the way, uh, at the very end, I asked you for a sleeper and you brought up Arturi Lekkonen, who And maybe ah. you, were, you were a year late or early, I should say but a year early yeah he was huge for colorado in that cup run so yeah and he produced he produced last year despite no one else producing i mean at a time when the canadians could not skate straight arturi lekkonen was the only one who was playing well yeah so there you go but uh, unfortunately he's gone but we've got a lot of new exciting players to talk about on this show we'll see how many of them are around when we talk next time in, (laughs) in a year or so but yeah so after we talked right like like i discussed we uh they snuck into the playoffs uh and they beat pittsburgh then they whatever like that that didn't go along with it it should they shouldn't even made the playoffs that year then the following Mm. year there was the the revamped divisions they came fourth in the canadian division uh like snuck in then they upset the leafs the jets the golden knights made it to the cup finals before losing to tampa and then last season they were last place in the league so a huge change uh wild ride for Habs fans since we've last talked but hey the silver line to that last season is they got that number one overall pick and there was a ray of hope coming from the team going on a bit of a run after martin st louis took over as the coach before the kind of fell apart at the end of the season uh then oh man i'm just setting the table here then we've had that crazy draft a couple months ago where they made that first pick that people have been debating uh they made that trade to get kirby doc we have the petrie matheson trade so i guess i want to dig into all of this but maybe just the first question i want to ask you is what is the vibe among the habs fandom at the moment like are people generally excited about the future or is it still mainly a feeling of dread and concern like after such a disastrous season well, I think there's there's a bit of a wait and see. I mean, I think people are excited about the the direction the team is taking in the sense that they've clearly explicitly um said that their their number one priority is player development. Wins and losses don't really matter right now. Um Stefan Robida, who was just hired as an assistant coach to replace Luke Richardson, flat out said that when Martin St. Louis called him, um the results are going to take a back seat to uh, to their process, to uh, the way they play, to all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with wins and losses. So I think the Canadians, they, while they haven't been as, as explicit as the Rangers were back when Jeff Gordon was the GM there and they sent a letter to their fans saying, we're going to rebuild, right. they haven't quite done that. But they are 
sending a pretty clear message that, you know, however long it takes for them to build a, a sustainably competitive team, that's what they're going to do. And, and, you know, they don't have, so I think there's, there's a good chunk of the Canadians fan base who have wanted them to do something like this for a long time. Um, but we'll see what happens if, or when they start losing a bunch of games this season. Cause let's be honest, like Jeff Gordon, Kent Hughes, Marte St. Louis, uh, all got sort of an extended honeymoon period, right? They, everyone acknowledged that they were given a mess. It's going to take some time to fix it. Uh, at some point that's going to flip among the fan base and be like, okay, well, you know, are we going to just keep losing all the time? When's this going to, when's this actually going to flip? It's not known as an overly patient fan base. And so we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens there. But I think right now there's more, there's some people who are in kind of wait and see mode, but I think the majority of fans are are looking at this as, as something they've wanted, you know, a process that they've wanted to get, to get started here uh, for quite some time. Right. And so I guess Habs fans listening now, don't be worried about another bad season, especially because everyone says that this 2023 draft class is going to be amazing. So probably not a bad year to have, like you say, a development year for the prospects and not necessarily to win a lot of games. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's it's funny when when Ken Hughes first got hired, uh, he mentioned to Marc-Antoine Godet and I when we were, in, we were chatting with him, he was he specifically said, we are not going to be in the running for Connor Bedard in 2023. Like that's not our plan. So many things changed. Number one thing being just the complete mystery surrounding Carey Price's health, which sort of forces this team to, um, to stagnate for a little bit, or at least be financially handcuffed for a while, not knowing if he's going to be able to play or not. Um, but since Ken Hughes said that the reality is when you look at the improvements made around the league, some of the teams that are in the lower tier of the league, will get better. The Canadians might get a little better, but probably not. If you look at their defense right now, it's pretty thin. Um, they have a shot at a, maybe a top five pick or a top five lottery position um, and definitely a top 10. So if you're in the top five, then you have a chance of winning the lottery. So Connor Bedard is not outside the realm of possibility, I would think. Yeah, and that would be huge. But I guess we'll have to see how the season goes. And I guess you brought up Carey Price. So let's start there. Because yeah, mm-hmm. such a big question mark going into next season. Like last season, he was also a big question mark going into the year. Like he was coming off that insane playoff performance, but then spent half of the season in the player assistance program and then had to recover from a knee injury. He did play five games at the end of last season. Uh, not great, like one in four, eight seventy eight save percentage. He had a strong final game versus Florida. So that was cool to see. Mm-hmm. Florida in quotation marks. They played like half their lineup. You know, they were locked into a playoff, oh, but still. Yes. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the latest I've seen, but of course, I'll, I'll get an update from you right now, is like that the this knee is still a serious issue and it's like unknown whether he'll play or not. So can you shed any clarity on the situation as it stands right now? Uh, no, that's pretty much <laughs> it. I mean, I mean, one thing, you know, Carey Price did have an injection of, uh, of platelet-rich plasma Um into his knee, which is, you know, I've, I've read some of the, you know, medical documentation on the process. I'm not a doctor, but apparently it's, it is something that they're hopeful will help uh, his knee heal properly. It's, it's, you know, I mean, the, the fact is that, you know, you worked so hard to come back last season. He played those five games, as you mentioned, that fifth game he played despite the knee not being hundred percent. Like he played that game thinking this might be my last game in the NHL. And, and so, you know, it was a meaningless game for both teams. So why not? Um, 
you know, this is the second time he's had a relatively minor knee injury that has just stubbornly refused to heal. So, I, I you know, there's a real possibility that Carey Price is not going to play another game. I mean, he might not get through training camp. No one knows. He doesn't know. The team doesn't know. Um, so there's not much new to add there until we see him on the ice. And, you know, usually sometime around the middle of this month, middle of August is when he would start ramping up his preparation for training camp. And so if he gets on the ice uh, out in Kelowna, uh, if he gets to Montreal, starts training camp, starts going through the rigors of training camp, if the knee doesn't respond well, he might start the season on LTIR and he might never come off. When we do, they just No one really knows until he tries it out. Yeah, man, this keeps happening to the Habs. I remember uh, like Shea Weber had that, like it was really unknown when he was going to play. Then now it turns out that he's not going to. And I guess not the same injury, of course, but yeah. And and I'd imagine it like that must affect so much because if he goes on LTIR, that's an extra 10.5 million in cap space. It's hard, must be hard to plan for the season, not knowing if price is in or not. Well, it's difficult. It's, it's impossible to run an off season, not knowing if price is in or not, because they have to assume he's in. Because if he's healthy, you can't just throw him on LTIR and say, oh, well, we, you know, he doesn't feel like playing. He has yeah, to be yeah. legitimately, he has to be legitimately injured. So, um, so yeah, that, that cap space will allow for certain things if he goes, but it doesn't even allow for much if he goes on LTIR with the hopes of coming back this season. If, if the possibility exists that Carey Price will return at some point, that, that extra cap space is basically useless. So, um, because they'll need the cap space to to bring to bring him back on, into the lineup at some point. So it's really, but it's I, I kind of see it. Obviously, not for Carey. This is not this doesn't apply to Carey Price, but for the Canadians, it's a bit of a blessing in disguise. Like when I mentioned earlier, how you know they're going to take their time and they're going to build it up properly. The financial constraints that this situation has put on the Canadians are are forcing them into what I feel is a more sensible approach to building a team. You know, they, they don't have the financial flexibility to go out and, you know, sign a Nazem Kadri or something, you know, do something that just doesn't make sense at this point in their, in their team building timeline. Um, and so if they were ever tempted to do something like that, the carry price situation basically takes that off the table. So um, <clears throat> listen, I hope for carry for Carrie's sake, he is able to come back. He desperately wants to. Uh, but the reality is, is that, it's it's really difficult to see a scenario where his knee miraculously recovers and and becomes and doesn't become an issue for six or eight months at a time, which is what would be required as a goalie plus playoffs, hopefully at some point. Um, so I, you know it doesn't look very good, and we might get some definitive answers early in training camp at some point in training camp just prior to the season. Uh, but for now, it's yeah, it's it's definitely a big question mark. Right. Yeah. Though it's an interesting point you make. It's kind of like what people say, like investing advice, like just like sort of get the money taken right out of your paycheck. So you're not yeah, like, exactly. tempted to like buy a big money item. Yes. Yes. That's that's what happened this offseason. <laughs> okay. So then I guess sticking in net. So with assuming price is out, then last year, like his backup, Jake Allen, ended up having to shoulder the load for a lot of the season until he mm-hmm. too missed a bunch of time with a groin injury. He w- he had a decent season overall, like all things considered with the team, like 905 save percentage, played like so many games. Like, do you do we have enough hit on Allen? Like, do we expect him to be 100% coming into training camp? And, and if he is healthy and if Price doesn't play, should we just expect Allen to be the volume starter again? Or have we learned a lesson from last year that, you know, that's not something that's going to be sustainable? Well, 
that's that's all that's a question mark. I, I think the Canadians should have learned this lesson based on how last season went. Um, there's no doubt Jake Allen's usage contributed to him getting injured. Like there was, it played a, a factor. I don't know how big of a factor, but it was definitely not a situation where uh, it was a situation where that might have been preventable. You know, if they, if you hadn't played as much, and and there was no reason to play him that much because. You know, while the team, because Dominic Ducharme played Jake Allen into the ground, but so did Martin Saint Louis. And you remember, like Mar- Saint Louis was questioned about it when 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 Allen got hurt, and Allen's agent sort of let it be known, like you know they were playing him a little too much, and and Saint Louis kind of took offense to that. And I think that at the time, the Canadians didn't necessarily need wins in terms of the standings, but they needed wins like the psyche of the team needed wins and i think martin saint louis really felt that and and really felt that the winning that happened when he first got there was doing his team some good and was doing the younger players some good and you know obviously we'll talk about some of them but to see how cole caulfield was different and suzuki was different and all sorts of also alex romanov who's no longer around as well as it was playing the best hockey of his career at that point uh so i think to him it was important that they that they get some wins together but you would hope that coming into for next season that that would be a lesson for everyone with the Canadians and and that they should know that, you know, Jake Allen has never really been that guy has never been a guy who, who has carried that big of a load. He's been a starter, but he always had sort of a, a lesser workload than some of the big workhorses around the league. So, you know, I think a 50 game cap would be something that, that would be sensible for in Jake Allen's case, which would mean playing someone like Sam Montembeau 30 games. If, if Carey Price isn't around. Right, yeah, and you brought up uh, Suzuki and Coffin. I want to get to them soon, but I guess let's let's uh, wrap a bow on the goalie talks. So you mentioned that Montembeau would probably be the backup last year. It was Montembeau who was the backup, and then whenever Allen got injured, then Caden Primo would come up, and then he'd kind of take over as the starter, and Montembeau would kind of like stay the backup. Or Montembeau did get some games. Uh, is, do you think that's kind of like is this just gonna be a repeat of last year? Do you think it's kind of like uh, Allen Montembeau, and then Primo is there whenever someone gets hurt? I think in an ideal world, they'd like you know obviously barring injury. Um, they'd like Primo to spend the whole year in Laval, I would think. I see. You know, he made a he made a great run with Laval. It was, it was very encouraging to see him kind of lead that team to the conference final in the AHL. And that was after, frankly, he looked lost prior to that. You know, especially his time in Montreal, the games he got in Montreal, uh, Primo was looking like a a non prospect, frankly. So I think that they would want him to be able to build on that playoff run in Laval, not have him yo-yo back and forth like he did last year and like he's done pretty much his entire time as a professional. Um, so if they can do that, if, if Alan and Montembeau could stay healthy, then yeah, we'll probably see them run it back. And I think Montembeau showed some signs of improvement at the end of the season where maybe they would feel more comfortable giving him more games. But again, you know, this team is not in a position where any game is a must-win game. So if it means resting Jake Allen and keeping him healthy, then they should just do that. Yeah. And if they accidentally fall into a lottery pick, then... Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> so be it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's move on to the forwards now. And yeah, the, I'd say the two biggest bright spots from last season, especially the second half, have got to be Suzuki and Caulfield. And, and like I said, we talked about Suzuki back in that last show we did after the 2019-20 season. You correctly predicted that we should expect a step forward in his sophomore season. He didn't disappoint. He had 41 points in 56 games for a 60-point pace. Similarly impressive production during that playoff run. And this netted Suzuki an eight-year contract extension, almost $8 million AAV uh, before last season, which was the last year of his ELC. And at 
first, he didn't seem to be looking that great. Like that contract wasn't, I guess, looking that great. He only put up eight goals, 16 assists, 24 points over his first 41 games. But then the new coach came in. He also had a new winger in Caulfield full time. Suzuki took off in the second half, 37 points in his final 41 games. Uh, and yet, Dom Lucision's model still has him as one of the worst contracts in the league. I saw yes. you wrote about that <laughs> recently. Uh, so with Martin St. Louis in place, like Cole Caulfield in place as his winger, uh, do you think what we saw out of Suzuki in the second half was for real? And we could just throw out that first half from the sample size when projecting him for next season? Because by, by my math, I would make him like a 75-point player. Uh, yeah, I do. I think that applies to pretty much everyone on the team. It's, it, you know, you don't look like... What happened under Dominique Ducharme or until February 10th, uh, I have basically thrown that out in terms of any evaluation I do of any aspect of this team. Um, it's also fair to question, you know, every the new coach bump is a real thing. And, and you know, the, some of the success the Canadians had when Martin St. Louis first took over might also be somewhat of a mirage, but I think it's closer to the reality than than that first, that first half was. So, um with Suzuki, with Caulfield, um, you know, you saw, well, you saw chemistry with them in the playoff run in, in 21 for sure. And um, that continued after Marte St. Louis came over just because they were given a certain amount of freedom. They were given the ability to make mistakes. They were given uh, multiple opportunities, offensive zone starts, you know, every chance they could have to produce offensively. I think that's going to continue the problem being, and the question mark being who's going to be on 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 the other wing. Um, it's interesting that Martin Saint Louis. One of the first things he did was was not permanently, but predominantly, move Cole Caulfield to the left side. He's a big proponent of players playing on their off wings, and so that might have also had an impact on his ability to sort of cut to the middle and 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 be on his forehand. Um, but who's going to take that other spot is going to be a really interesting development and really determine just how well those guys can produce offensively because everyone got a shot there. I mean, the only guy who didn't really is Jonathan Drouin, uh, who got hurt pretty much as soon as Martin St. Louis arrived. Um, and the other possibility is, is Uri Slavkovsky, of course, who they took first overall. So that's going to be a real interesting part of training camp um, to see who gets that spot. Uh, but I would expect, you know, I think 75 points is a reasonable target for Nick Suzuki. He might come just short of it or he might surpass it, but I I wouldn't I wouldn't raise my eyebrows at someone predicting a 75 point season for Nick Suzuki this year. Right, so even odds on the over under at 75, which I think yeah. is is pretty reasonable top line center, but yeah, like you say it is interesting trying to figure out who's going to be that third on the top line. I guess Dodonov is also in the picture. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely he is. Yes. He would be. He had he had, a, he had a really good year last year. Honestly, despite everything, um, he produced on that team. But I think the one thing with him, his time in Ottawa kind of showed that he needs good players with him mm-hmm. to produce. You know, he produced in Florida, playing with predominantly with Barkov, um, produced in Vegas with good players on his line. Uh, you know, I think Suzuki and Caulfield would qualify as good players. So yeah, he's definitely he's definitely in the running for that spot as well. And like there hasn't been any hint yet from St. Louis about who it will be. Like it's just a total mystery at this point. Yeah, we're gonna see on the first day of camp. Right. I don't think he hasn't hint- he hasn't hinted at anything, but I do think that Dadanov is um 
is a good insurance policy. Like, listen, when when Yuri Slavkovsky was picked first, they brought him into the dressing room to show him the Canadians' dressing room. His jersey was on a hook in a locker, and on either side of his jersey was Caulfield's jersey and Suzuki's jersey. <laughs> nice. So they were literally right next to his. So he's expressed a desire to be there. I would imagine he'll get a shot there um, in camp, uh, but we'll see how that works. But it's, you know, down the road, it seems to me that that's the plan for the Canadians that ideal in an ideal situation. If everyone, if it, if it works out on the ice, if the chemistry works, that the, the first line of the future for the Canadians would be Cole Caulfield, Nick Suzuki and your ice Yeah. Which could be really exciting. And I guess, yeah, if you take a guy first overall, you're going to hope that he could be a, a first liner. So yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I guess since you're bringing him up, I, I know that you tweeted after the draft that you were so happy that no one was going to be asking you who the Habs are going to pick anymore. Yes. Uh, but yeah. I hope you don't mind if I ask you another probably question that you've had a million times. I know you've already written about, but what did you think of the pick? Because Shane Wright was, of course, the front runner for first overall for like a long mm-hmm. while. But then Slavkovsky turned a lot of heads in the Olympics, seven goals in seven games. I'd imagine that played a big part in his overtaking Wright as the Habs choice. Uh, the world champ, the world championships as well. Right, world championships yeah. was really the clincher, I think, for him. Is, um, but yeah, he's listen. It's the Canadians' argument, and I think it's a decent one because I don't know how many people. I know I definitely didn't do this. Uh, the most compelling thing that I heard them say is that they looked at past drafts and they looked at future drafts, and determined that a player like Slavkovsky comes around less often than players like Wright and, and even Cooley. I think Cooley was legitimately in that conversation. Interesting. Um, So, you know, you can extrapolate that going back to what we were talking about earlier. If they have, let's say a top five pick next year, uh, you look at the upcoming draft, it's loaded with high skill, high talent centers. Um. There are a lot of options for the Canadians. If even if they're in the top ten, they could get a really good center, a center who would have been in the top three conversation or top five conversation this year, will be available in the top ten next year, based on what people who know about this stuff uh, are telling me. And so, it's not unreasonable to say to look at that situation, look at their own situation, and and how they're probably not going to be all that competitive this season and say, okay, well, let's take the guy that's not available next year and try and get another guy in the next draft um, to fill that, that, that two C or that one B center slot. Because I do feel that while, while I think Nick Suzuki is a very talented player and, and he's a very effective player, he's, he's never going to be an upper echelon, you know, top tier center in the league. You know, he's always going to be, in my eyes, at least, you know, more of a an average first line center is kind of his his ceiling as far as I'm concerned. Um, and maybe he'll prove me wrong and power to him if he does. But um, having sort of a high end second center when you're in a situation like that um, makes it so that you can the two of them combined give you center, give you strength down the middle, whereas you know, if it's just Suzuki and then, you know, sort of another average second line center and you're going up against, you know, uh, a Braden Point and a, and, and a, and a Stamkos or Sorelli and, 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 you know, obviously 
with Matthews and Tavares and Toronto, like just in their division alone, um, it's a problem. You know, it's, it's for future your ability to get out of the playoffs in the future is, is problematic. And so um, that's why I thought they should take right because he, he had a, a really a very similar set of strengths to Nick Suzuki um, processes the game super well uh, really thinks the game and, 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 and is efficient in his movements. Uh, I find that, you know, the knock on Shane, Wright That he didn't always elevate his game or that he, he didn't seem to want to take over games is a lot of the same criticism Nick Suzuki got when he played in junior, just because he was playing so many minutes um, was managing his energy and was efficient in his movements was going to spots uh, where he was anticipating the play was going to go. Shane Wright's a super similar player. And so, you know, but I think ultimately that might've also been a knock against Shane Wright is that he was too similar to Nick Suzuki and you don't want too much of the same thing on their, on the, on the same team. Uh, but I think the fact that Arizona passed on Wright as well is also a bit of an endorsement of the Canadians decision in the sense that, you know, even, even the team picking third who had the, number one prospect fall in their laps, decide to pass on him. So it's um, that to me was the most surprising element of the draft was, was Arizona passing on Shane, Wright. Right. Yeah. And I guess obviously time will tell who was right and who was wrong with all this, but I think yeah. that that's a really interesting way to think about it. The fact that the halves, like you said, they could get that center maybe next year that can complement mm-hmm. Suzuki. Also, I was thinking like when you're saying that Suzuki is like a really good center, but maybe not like a top tier center kind of reminded me, tell me if this is a good analogy, maybe like a New Jersey situation where they had he sheer who's really good, but then it like was very helpful to get like Jack Hughes so that he sure doesn't have yeah. to be like the number one center. Yeah. I mean, he is a very similar player to right. I mean, it's really kind of what, you know, if right if right hits, uh, that's the type of player he'll be. You know, it, it seems to be, um, which is great because you know everyone could look back at that draft and say, "Oh man, it would have been nice if they took you know Kale McCarr first, you know, or you know Elias Pedersen first. Um, but it wouldn't solve that problem. They wouldn't. It wouldn't give them this one-two punch that they have at center now. That's going to be really good for many years and and they're set as far as you know Hughes is going to be a star he shares the perfect guy to sort of back up a star player and do some some you know take some of the more d- difficult minutes away from him be able to face top competition so yeah I think you know Suzuki definitely has that kind of stuff in it he takes a lot of pride in his defensive play and I think he's that's that's still a work in progress for him I think the smarts are there to play defensively but he just needs to know the league a little bit better um and just get more familiar with players tendencies because even though this is his fourth year it's been a really scattered nhl career for nick suzuki right a canadian division one year uh you know COVID halted season another you know he really played his first full season uh this year so i think he'll get there as far as being a really you know powerful impactful two-way center uh but i think the defensive side of things is still uh it still needs some, a little bit of improvement from him Right. And I guess while we're waiting for that 2023 center to come into the picture, the Habs made that other big move at the draft, uh, getting Kirby Doc. So the third overall pick mm-hmm. in 2019 hasn't come close to producing like the 15th overall pick from that draft, which we'll, <laughs> yes. we'll get to in a sec. Uh, but yeah, Doc, 26 points in 70 games with Chicago last season. He was playing like over 18 minutes a night. So it's not as if he was getting buried. He just like wasn't producing for whatever reason. Oh, and he had, and he's playing with good line mates. I mean, he played with, with Kane and to brink it for a while right over there yeah 
Yeah, so what did you think of the trade? You're saying that Romanov had like played some of his best hockey at the end of last season. The Habs sent Romanov for Doc, basically coming off the heels of passing on Shane Wright in the draft. Uh, do mm-hmm. you like? Yeah, so what do you think of the trade? And do you see Doc slotting in as the two C next year, or is it like you know between him and someone else potentially? Like he'll have to earn a spot at the top six. Yeah, I think he will. Um, I think Christian Dvorak is that someone else who also really quietly uh, found his game under Martin St. Louis. Like it really, you oh. know, yeah, Dvorak's, Dvorak's someone who has a long track record of being just a really solid two-way center who who produces, could produce on the power play. You know, there were some, there were reasons why, legitimate reasons why the Canadians went and traded for him. Um, he looked like more of that player uh, when he came back from injury and, and was playing under Martin St. Louis. But yeah, I think Kirby Doc will be uh, given a chance to compete for that spot for sure. Um, you know, I think the trade, what I like most about the trade actually is Kent Hughes said he would do exactly this. That same interview that I referenced earlier where he spoke to, to us not long, maybe a week after being hired is he said, if he, they have a chance to go out and get, I forget what number he used. It wasn't number three, but he said, if we have a chance to go out and get the number seven pick from 2019 or the number seven pick in 2022, all things being equal, I'd rather have the number seven pick from 2019 because he's he's that much further along and he's that much closer to helping us. Um, that's what he did here. It's a bet. Listen, I mean, if you go back to 2019, Kirby Doc was a bit of a reach at number three for the Blackhawks. So looking at him as a top three pick, you know, I don't know how many other teams would have taken Kirby Doc in that spot, um, but he was definitely a top 10 talent. I mean, he was, you know, a consensus top 10 talent. He's got the tools. He he skates beautifully for a big man, and he skates, he's he's an excellent skater, just period. But you put that on a six foot four frame, um, has hands, has 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 skill. Uh, I think the one misnomer about him is that he, yes, he's six four, uh, but he doesn't really play six four. You know, he, he's not someone who who necessarily physically imposes his his will on his opponents. You know, he's. He's good in terms of battling in front of the net, even defensively. I, I've watched a bunch of Blackhawks games, and and he's he's pretty active in front of his own net defensively. Um, you know, moves through the neutral ice really well, but but in the offensive zone, sometimes tends to get lost and tends to have moments where he's not quite sure where to go. And and as I mentioned, you know, I've, I've seen a few of his games when he was playing with Kane and Debrinket, and you know, those two have excellent chemistry. Kirby Doc didn't seem to know how to fit in with that chemistry. You know, it was just kind of seemed like a third wheel more often than not. So, you know, I think getting him into a different environment, getting him with the right players. Uh, and, you know, he said it uh, the day after the trade was like how he's looking forward to working with Martin St. Louis. And, and it's crazy how much of the identity of this team is now tied to this coach. Um it's uh you know he a coach who was coaching in bantam last year right uh is now is now basically the face of the canadians i mean when you saw him ju- go up come out on stage at the draft and give that pump up speech and i mean it looked like a scene out of a out of an old old time like citizen kane like i don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> citizen kane but yeah. you know like he would standing in front of these huge banners there was like little martin saint louis in front of this huge screen pumping up the crowd uh, natural charisma, like he is the face of the Canadians right now. He really is, and it's and so with Kirby Doc, with guys like Justin Barron, if Caden Gooley makes his team, uh, 
you know, several players, Suzuki, Caulfield, even some of the older guys, like Marte St. Louis is a big believer that development never stops. And so in Kirby Doc's case, this is definitely a case where the Canadians believe that they have the development tools in place. And so they went out and got a player that they felt was not being developed properly. Because let's be honest, if there's one team who doesn't develop, who develops prospects worse than the Canadians, it's probably the Chicago Blackhawks. Right. So it's really, I think they saw sort of an, an opportunity there to take a player out of an environment where development is not that team's strength. And the Canadians clearly believe that development is now their strength. They have to prove it still, but that's something that they believe. And this was a trade that um, that reflected that. Yeah, and so it'll be fun to see how Doc does now in this new situation. I've got a would, would you rather for you. Who would you rather have between Kirby Doc or Jesperi Kokniemi, who was kind of like was supposed to maybe play a similar role before Carolina swooped in and stole him? Well, it's a pretty, it's a pretty similar situation. You know, I mean, like, listen, Kokniemi... Similar frame, uh, somewhat similar style. I mean, Kakaniemi wasn't a very strong skater. I guess that's the difference between him and Doc. But, uh, you know, the career arch is it went similarly. And so it's, yeah, who would I rather have? It's hard to say. I, I don't know Kirby Doc that well. I know Kakaniemi's game really well. Mm-hmm. I think he's a very intelligent player who sees the ice um, – at a very high level, the skating is an issue, but the passing, uh, the anticipation, there's all sorts of tools uh, that he has uh, that would have worked well with this coach, frankly. I mean, making reads, uh, anticipating plays, uh, knowing where teammates are at all times. These are things that Kakiyami does does well. Uh, So I think I'd rather have Kakiyami just because, you know, I, I, it's not like if Doc were like this physical beast coming in as like a center who can knock bodies and, and do all sorts of things physically, then then maybe there'd be an argument to be made for Doc. But um, yeah, I think between the two, I'd probably take Doc and Yemen. But it's, it's tight. I mean, it's really tight. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about some more of these uh, returning forwards to the team. We still haven't talked about Cole Caulfield, who a lot like Suzuki, maybe even more starkly, just had such a difference between the first half and the second half of the year. Like, he got sent to the minors at one point. Like, going into the season, a lot of people were talking about Caulfield as like the favorite to win the Calder. And then, you know, shortly into the season, he gets sent to the minors. That goes away. But then, yeah, Martin St. Louis takes over. And it's like we saw a completely different player. Uh, like Ducharme was fired and Martin St. Louis was hired on February 9th. Caulfield scored a goal versus Washington on the 10th. He scored uh-huh. again in the next game. He had four goals over the next five games after that. Before we knew it, Caulfield ended the season with 22 goals and 35 points in his final 38 games. So again, to extrapolate that, that would be over 82 games, 47 goals and 75 points. So I guess I have a similar question as with Suzuki. But like, first of all, I, I guess like what changed with Caulfield? Like, was he did he actually turn into a different player or was it just like, uh, you know, MSL gave him an opportunity that Ducharme for whatever reason didn't want to give him? And then, yeah, do you think that what we saw out of Caulfield is something that will translate also into next season i think i think one thing that changed a lot uh for him is uh ducharme had um ducharme was really rigid in his ways you know i mean he you know he wanted players he he was a big believer in, in having multiple options uh for the player with 
you know, the players without the puck, giving the puck carrier multiple options, but he really had like really precise routes that he wanted his players to run. He would literally stop practice sometimes and actually show them the route that they were supposed to take uh, in a given situation. There were some, there were really some really precise directives given to a lot of the players. And it just seemed like this was Caulfield was just not, not able to play like that. Uh, he needed to play a freer game that was more based on his own read of the game where, you know, what areas of the ice are open in a given time. Really what his gift is, his his best skill as a player for Cole Caulfield is finding dead areas of the ice. It's finding places that the opposing team has has not accounted for, has not has not considered as a threat. Um, his whole time at the USNTDP, Everyone knew Cole Caulfield was their number one answer or number one option in terms of finding him a shot because uh, he was just such a prolific scorer. Yet he still managed to find soft areas in the ice where, you know, Hughes could could find him with a pass and he'd have a wide open net or a one timer, you know, just him and the goaltender with a one timer. Like you watch you'd watch his games at the US NTDP and at the University of Wisconsin. You're like, why isn't the other team like shadowing this guy? Like, what is wrong with them? Uh the reason is that he's he's just really has this innate ability uh, to find soft spots in in the defense and and play without the puck really well. Um, I think Ducharme took some of that away, took some of that instinct away from his game and made it more regimented and rigid in the way he wanted. And there were there were honestly, I would say it's fair to say numerous times in the first half of last year where you would see the Canadians break out and Caulfield halfway through a route would stop realizing he was running the wrong route and turn back and double back and run a different route. And it was just like, you and so you're literally watching a player thinking on the ice, which is death, you know? So I think that's the biggest difference is that he was given more freedom to make his own reads and that allowed him and Suzuki to read off each other, which we already knew they do very well. And so, but, it, you know, it's not as if Dominic Ducharme didn't want Cole Caulfield to score goals. It's just that the way he was trying to help him do it was not a way that really works all that well with a player like Cole Caulfield. Yeah. What is, I'm kind of curious now. This is kind of off the path a little bit. What is the legacy for Dominic Ducharme at this point for Habs fans? Like, he took them to the finals. Maybe yeah, you can say Carey Price. Yeah, Price took them to the finals, maybe. But Ducharme was, like, was the coach. Like, he's, like, ever celebrated. And now, like, in this interview, we're just talking about how, like, all these players stunk under Ducharme. And then as soon as Martin St. Louis came over, they, they, like, exploded. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, you know, I feel bad for Dom. I like Dom. As a coach, I think he's a really smart coach. He has really good ideas. Um, and I liked how, you know, compared to Claude Julien, you know, I liked how he he did have he did have a belief in allowing players to make decisions on the ice. Like when he talked about options, he left it up to the players to evaluate what's the best option in any given situation. And the one thing the first, one of the first things I noticed under Dominique Ducharme is that before every faceoff. Uh, before every offensive zone faceoff, at least the Canes would would huddle like a football team, and they would they would decide the faceoff play that they were going to run, and they would talk it out and quickly come to a decision. Okay, we're going to do this, and and based on what they were seeing, the personnel on the ice. But that directive didn't come from the coach; he empowered the players to do that. And so I think there were a lot of progressive things that Dominique Ducharme implemented. Um, ultimately, a whole series of really bad circumstances 
put him in an untenable situation. And I think a lot of, you know, he recently sat down with my colleague, Marc-Antoine Godin for a long interview. Um, and a lot of, a lot of the reaction to the stuff he said in there, where he talked about, you know, new management never came to me and said, it's okay to lose. Uh, they never communicated that to me. Uh, you know, he, it was so that it was difficult for him to come off an appearance in the Stanley cup final with a general manager who was in the final year of his contract, who had made moves in the off season that a playoff team would make. Like you don't sign Matthew Perot and Cedric Paquette and all these veteran guys if you don't think, and, and frankly, even Mike Hoffman, like you don't sign guys like that if you don't expect to be a playoff team and expect to have a chance to compete. So I would say that Ducharme was put into a very difficult situation. The players were clearly not ready to start the season after the run they went on and after the historically short summer that they that they went through. A summer that was just as short for the Tampa Bay Lightning, it should be noted, and and didn't impact their start. Uh, but I did talk to John Cooper about this, and it did catch up to them in his estimation sometime around February, where they did hit somewhat of a wall at some point. But the Canadians hit it right off the bat, right at training camp. Training camp was a disaster. They were getting blown out in exhibition games. And so you could see it right away. And I think for Ducharme, it was just this constant snowball effect where he was just chasing his tail. You know, he was chasing something that was not attainable. And I think. Mark Bergevin's circumstances impacted that um, because he too, as a GM in the final year of his contract, wanted to wanted to make another run at a playoff at a playoff spot. Uh, so I hope he gets another chance somewhere. Uh, but his legacy in Montreal is, is unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of people are going to look at that run to the cup final as, as, as totally circumstantial as, as, as something that came about because of the division alignment um, because of COVID basically, and because of an incredibly hot goaltender, which is not entirely fair. I mean, it's, you know, the Canadians legitimately beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in the first round of the playoffs and, you know, an elite team in the NHL, they beat the jets who I wouldn't really call an elite team, but were a very good team and, and frankly a better team than the Canadians. They swept them. And then they beat the Vegas Golden Knights, who were, that season at least, an elite team in the NHL. And so it's not like they 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 it's not like they backed into the Stanley Cup final. Like they 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 went in and they beat two really, really good teams and one very good team uh to make it there. And Ducharme was a part of that, but the fact that he was out with COVID during the conference final and they beat them anyway doesn't play in his favor. Mm. Um and just the utter disaster that happened this past season, unfortunately for him, I think is going to overshadow the Stanley cup appearance. Because as I mentioned, I think a lot of people don't look at him as the number one reason why they made the Stanley cup final. Right. Yeah. It's a really interesting conversation. I'd love to keep it going. We probably should yeah. circle back to the yeah. the players. You brought up this Mike Hoffman signing. So maybe we could jump to him now. We still have a mm-hmm. few wingers on this team. You know, when we were talking about who's going to play on the top line, but then of course, then we could fill out the second line and even, even the third, like it, a lot of talent here, unless 
they're kind of washed up. So I guess that's the question I want to ask. Because Mike Hoffman, you know, he had two 35-goal, like, 70-point seasons with Florida. He took a bit of a step back with St. Louis, uh, and then another step back last season with the Habs, only 35 points in 67 games. So it's like a 43-point pace. Is there any reason for hope that Hoffman, like, still has it in him to put up a big season now as a 32-year-old? Or do you think what we saw last season is more of what we should expect this coming year? No, I think, I mean, listen, it, I think his goal numbers will go back up. I mean, it's really, um, you know, I mean, you mentioned the little step back and saying, look, that's he still scored 17 goals in 52 games. So it's not yeah. like he didn't produce there and they actually want to bring him back. Like, that's the thing is that he, you know, they made him what I was told was a pretty competitive offer to stay. Um, and that's a pretty good team wanting Mike Hoffman to stay. And so, um, and even despite everything, he still he did score 15 goals last year, which is you know historically low number for him. Uh, so I would expect the goal numbers to get back because you know you don't you don't lose your shot with age, and that's basically the only thing Mike Hoffman does very well is, is shoot the puck. And so I would anticipate uh, the you know the Canadians and Marte Saint Louis. Like I'll say this is that. He was given many opportunities to criticize Mike Hoffman and insisted every time he was given that opportunity, insisted how much he liked Hoffman's game, uh, how much he he feels that there's 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 room to grow there with this player despite his age. Um, I think they'll find a way to get him some power play looks. I think they'll find a way to get him some looks at even strength where he can get rid of like. The, the thing was that was remarkable about him last season was that he wasn't getting opportunities to let go of a shot. He was not getting one-timer looks at, at any strength in any situation. So um, I think if, 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 if St. Louis and the coaching staff are able to create that for him, um, I think you'll see the goal numbers go up and, and listen, the areas where Mike Hoffman is deficient, um, they matter to a hockey team, but they don't matter to a fantasy hockey team. Like right, he's, exactly. Like to me, I think he's like a good fantasy player, but you know his limitations are what make it so that he doesn't necessarily help his team win games, other than score goals, which sounds stupid. But you know, even in a thirty goal season, that's less than a goal every two games, and you need to be doing other things. And so this is where Mike Hoffman gets into trouble. But getting him up back up to twenty five goals is even likely I would say in his case, like, I really think the, you know, him, like imagine a player arriving as a free agent into that, into that whole me- that we just finished talking about that whole thing. I described with Ducharme and, and the cup final and Bergevin's contract and this and that. And he comes in in the middle of this, you know? And so it's, listen, that signing was a mistake. A hundred percent mistake, unforced error for Mark Bergevin, but, he, he can still score goals, and I would anticipate he'll do that with more frequency this year, for sure. Yeah. And hey, who knows? Maybe it won't turn out to be a mistake. Like, theoretically, you could imagine a situation, or tell me if you, you see this happening. If, if Hoffman does decently, then maybe they can get a decent return for him at the trade deadline, because he'll be a UFA at the end of this season. So maybe he could be a rental that they ship out for a pick. Do you think that's something that they're yeah, looking no, at? Yeah, they well, no, they have, they have one more year with him. So it'll be, it'll be, tough. It'll be tough to move to move him this year. They do oh, still I have see. they have one more year at four point five with him, but uh, but yeah, I mean it's I don't know. I mean if he's if he starts scoring the way he has historically, uh, 
if a team is desperate for some help on the power play, I mean, it's weird that things have happened. I, I, I would, I would be surprised if the right. Canes were able to move him at the deadline, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's possible, I suppose, or maybe the draft next year. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, Mike Hoffman's in the driver's seat in terms of if that will happen or not, because, uh, you know, if he gets back up to the the goal totals that that we've become accustomed to with him, you know, mid to mid to high twenties, uh, which I do think is possible, um, you know, he he becomes a somewhat attractive commodity if a team requires that highly specific set of skills that that Mike Hoffman provides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, my mistake. For some reason, I thought it was just one year left. But yeah, it's two left yeah. at four point five. Yeah, you've been in Ken Hughes' dreams. You've been wandering around in Ken Hughes' dreams. <laughs> Wishing that's, that there that's was where a... you that's where you got that information from. <laughs> My mistake. <laughs> yeah, so is another place in Ken Hughes' dream uh looking at that Josh Anderson contract? Because he still has quite a few years left at five point five million. He's the next guy I wanted to ask you about. Uh they traded mm-hmm. Max Domi for him and then signed him to that long-term deal. Since then, Anderson has paced for also like 20, 25 goals in his first couple seasons as a Hab, but with so few assists, he's failed to even hit a 40-point pace, just mainly goals. Uh, of course, he's contributing in other ways. Like, you look on the stat sheet, you just see the big hits numbers. Uh, uh, is yeah. this the kind of thing where Anderson is contributing like kind of to the level that the Habs were expecting when they traded for him and signed him, and they're like happy with what they've gotten? And like me as a fantasy player is just like a little underwhelmed, but like I'm not, see- you know, I'm not appreciating what he does uh, outside of the score sheep or do you think that this is like a situation where they were hoping they were getting someone better and it's been kind of a disappointment uh i mean if they were expecting someone better um they shouldn't have i mean it's it's he's basically come as advertised he's a high energy player uh excellent on the forecheck scores goals off the rush um a lot but doesn't do a whole lot in the offensive zone when in terms of cycle game and, and things like that um, is, is, is a very ineffective power play guy. Uh, so his fantasy impact is limited by that. The fact that he's never really been a guy who's been the least bit effective on a power play and that his goals come in spurts, but you know, he, he does score goals and he does hit people. Like what you said is correct. Josh Anderson's value to a team is that playing against Josh Anderson in a playoff series sucks. It mm. just is not fun. I mean, if you go back and look at that Lee series, watch watch how differently Jake Muzzin would go back to get to retrieve pucks in his own end if Josh Anderson is on the ice and when Josh Anderson is not on the ice. When Josh Anderson was on the ice, Muzzin in particular, but several of the Leafs defensemen were aware and would get rid of the puck as soon as they could. Like they would, they would not even turn around. They would get to the puck and rim it, rim it up the boards, and and you know peel back the other way. Uh, he became a factor in how the Maple Leafs broke the puck out, and so just by being on the ice and just by finishing all his hits. So that doesn't have much of a fantasy impact other than the hits category, as you mentioned. So he, he is a bit of an empty calories kind of guy. Similarly, I suppose in some ways to Mike Hoffman, other than the fact that he does provide this other element that that's not as tangible um, in a playoff situation. But, you know, I think Josh Anderson is what he is and he's, he's a, he's a good player. He's a rare player. You know, he's not, I think if the Canadians want to just get rid of him, they could have easily traded him. Um, but they don't want to do that. They they would rather 
make a trade like they did with the Jeff Petrie trade where they could bring back a, a player that's a little less expensive, but just as effective or just as valuable or a little bit younger, uh, create a little bit of cap space at the same time. Uh, but this this is not a contract that I think the Canadians management is looking to dump or 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 just yeah or just you know do a salary dump with him because he's he's an effective unique player right. that will help this team when they're good. Like let's say it takes this team two years to be good. Josh Anderson should be a reasonably effective player at that time. He'll still have a couple of years left on his deal. Those those two years might be difficult at that number, but. You also have to remember the salary cap is going to start going up at some point. And so once that starts happening, his contract becomes less and less of a burden. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so he doesn't have a bad contract. Uh, like we said, Dom Lucision was saying that Suzuki it ha- has one of the top 10 worst contracts, which I guess yeah. a lot of people are debating. If you would have told me, just like quiz me, like D- Dom Lucision just released a list of the top 10 worst contracts and there's a Habs contract on it. Which one do you think it is? I think my guess would have been Brendan Gallagher. Brendan Gallagher, yeah. Oh, maybe Jonathan Drew, but Gallagher still has so many years left, right? So he's the one I want to ask you about. No, Josh Anderson. Josh Anderson is the guy I would have said. Oh. Because, yeah, his underlying underlying numbers aren't all that great. And and Brendan Gallagher, the thing that Gallagher has going for him is that his are great. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the the funny thing about Brendan Gallagher, just quickly, is so I was looking. So I was doing the research to kind of rebut Dom's thing on the 10 on, on Suzuki. Um, and and you should know that Dom was like fully on board with me doing that. He was like, Yeah, you should definitely do that. Like, that's a hundred percent the of course. Like he wrote it in his write-up. He was like, This doesn't seem right, you know. Like it's so we'll see. But so in doing that research, I looked at Canadians, you know, Dom uses a, a metric that he invented called game score, right? Which takes a whole bunch of different sca- statistics and and comes up with a score uh for every game. For every player in the whole league, um, so the site there's a site, Hockey Stack Cards, that that documents the game score of all these players, and so you're able to look at a player's average game score before and after the arrival of Martin Saint Louis. And I was doing this to see how Nick Suzuki performed before and after, but the real striking one uh, was Gallagher. Gallagher was top three on the team in game score under Saint Louis, so. Um, that contract's gonna is not great, uh, but you know I, I've said it many many times. If there's one guy I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt, it's Brendan Gallagher. He's you know he's vowed that he's going to come back better prepared than he ever has. I have no doubt he will. I've I've seen him. I've been I've attended one of his off season workouts. Uh, they're insane. <laughs> so it's uh, that's a case where yeah, it's. Right now, that contract looks terrible, but I wouldn't put it past Brendan Gallagher to make it look not great, but far less terrible as as this season. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting to know that in terms of fantasy, because yeah, Gallagher has been such a reliable, like, you know, 30 goal guy, like high volume shooter. And then last year, just kind of like uh, the production at least like fell off, right? Like 24 points in 56 games, only two and a half shots per game, the lowest rate of his career. So it sounds like you're saying that maybe Gallagher makes for a good sleeper next year. You, you have a feeling he gets, do you think he gets back to like the 30 goal guy he was before? Or even, I guess even as like a 25 goal guy. And I'd love to see if he could get back up to three shots per game, that's super valuable to a fantasy team i mean the sh- three shots per game is is i would for sure put that within the realm of possibility um that's something that he can most definitely accomplish um 
you know, 30 goals, 30 goals might be pushing it, but um, 25, I think uh, it's, it's, you know, the shot volume was still there last year. I mean, he just wasn't bearing anything. Uh, but I think the goal numbers should climb back up this, this long off season. If there's one player on the team that'll benefit the most is probably him. Okay. Yeah. So he's definitely a name that I'll try to remember when I'm going into my drafts and yeah, like maybe someone who could be someone that people are maybe forgetting about, but he could actually Mm -hmm. be an impactful guy still. Okay. I I obviously want to ask about the D I'll just one more forward really quickly. Jonathan Druen. I, I I guess it's probably time. Another uh, third overall pick by the way. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. So unfortunately things have not worked out well for him. When we talked last, you were saying how it was, it was coming off a season where he started like super strong and like he'd worked really hard to like change his game. And then he unfortunately got, injured and then since then it's been like rough like he hasn't been able to play a full season he had to take that leave of absence due to anxiety and insomnia and then last mm-hmm. season he couldn't stay healthy once he was back like just quickly like how how is Druen doing like do we expect him to come back next season like do we think that there's a chance he could still play a full season for this team yeah well his wrist looks good I mean he he jumped on the ice uh on free agency day actually and and was shooting pucks handling pucks looked good um you know, he's a guy that did not really get a chance to play for Martin San Luis, as we mentioned earlier. And so, you know, I think they actually, I think Jonathan Joy's first training camp with the Lightning was Martin San Luis' last training camp with the Lightning, if I, oh, if right. I, if I remember correctly. So, um, you know, they do have a bit of a history. Uh, and, um, you know, he's a player who are, I think he could benefit from from him. And so, Listen, he's going to be highly motivated. He's in the last year of his contract. Um, he's a team, you know, he's a, he's a guy, like as we were talking about with Hoffman, like if Drew can figure it out and, and, and frankly, when, the, when, the when no one on the team was performing and we mentioned that Lekkonen was one of the only guys who was performing under, under Ducharme, uh, the other guy was Drew. Drew, I thought was playing some pretty decent hockey uh, when no one around him was. So I'm really curious to see, like, I, I think, there's a there's a slight possibility that this guy will 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 kind of realize to what extent like his career I don't want to say hang in the balance because I, I don't think his career is going to end necessarily but this is kind of his last chance to become who everyone always thought he would be and it that's something that's really important to that he, like he's a he's an extremely competitive guy and he is obsessed with hockey I think this is what a lot of people don't realize about him is that he you know i i would be willing to bet listen it's now two thirty two thirty in the afternoon in august i'd be willing to bet that right now jonathan joy is somewhere watching tape <laughs> like i would i would honestly i would i would put money on that like it's oh. it's there's a there's a decent to fair chance that he's somewhere watching video um so for a variety of reasons many of which were self-inflicted Joanne has not been able to figure it out. But if you look at what's happened since he arrived in Montreal, first he gets traded for this stud defense prospect that, you know, the Canadians shouldn't have, but he he immediately gets thrown at center, which was everyone except the Canadians knew that wasn't going to work. I think Joanne even knew it wasn't going to work. Then he gets yanked out of center and then, you know, coaching changes and this and that. And it's, it's, I'm curious to see, and the scrutiny on this guy has just been through the roof. Uh, 
many times warranted, you know, like there was, there was that year when he just completely disappeared as soon as crunch time arrived and the Canadians needed to make a final push to get into the playoffs. And there, he came out after that season and owned it and said, he's going to make changes to his game. That's when he famously called Dom Ducharme in the summer to come and work with him on video. They identified areas where he could improve. He actually did that, that season got hurt in Washington um, which totally derailed his year. That was the first wrist injury. Now another wrist injury, which frankly was not handled well by the Canadians. Uh, he initially got hurt. They said, oh, we won't do surgery. We'll wait. Um, we'll rehab. You'll come back. And he played, I think it was two games, and uh, had to have surgery. So that there goes that season. So I'd like to see like a drama-free season with Jonathan Drouet. Uh, obviously you mentioned the anxiety and the insomnia, which which was impacting now in retrospect, we can look, but was impacting his performance for a long time before he finally realized that he needed some help. Um, I'd like to see Jonathan Drouin and how he performs in an environment where he's not constantly surrounded by complete chaos and drama. And so I think he's a, he's a player who, who could, under these circumstances, who could thrive. Wow. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting guys on this team in terms of like players who maybe we've forgotten about like a little bit, like your Hoffmans, Gallagher's, Druans, who maybe can still surprise us. So it'll be fun to see how they do. So the forwards, yeah, we've been talking about a lot of forwards that are interesting. Uh, but of course, now we have to end on defense where there's a lot fewer. I, I used up almost the majority of my time with you talking about goalies <laughs> and forwards. And I think it's yes. it's okay because I could uh, make make it back up in the defense because I don't there's not think, too yeah. many players. I don't think for fantasy purposes, there's not a whole lot going on on defense in Montreal. That's yeah. Sure. Like, I mean, for the last couple of years, Jeff Petrie was like a real stud, you know? And last year was another season like with Caulfield and Suzuki, right? Petrie was like absolutely disappeared in the first half. And he actually had a really strong second half, a strong end of the season. I actually picked him up in one of my leagues and ended up winning mm-hmm. the championship on the back of a Jeff Petrie, a free agency pickup. Uh, but now nice. he's off to Pittsburgh. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so he's off to Pittsburgh uh, with Mike Matheson coming the other way. And, you know, with Roman also off to the Islanders. First of all, I wonder how many Habs defensemen, like non-Habs fan listeners, right now could even name at this point after Mike Matheson. Yeah, well, there's. I mean, okay, well, there are a few things. There are a few unknowns. So let's let's for the benefit of your listeners and to demonstrate to what extent um, your listeners shouldn't be looking at Habs defensemen as possibilities. Um, your likely top four is probably going to be, I would guess, right now. Uh, Joel Edmondson paired with Justin Barron and Mike and Mike Matheson paired with David Savard. So, and then on the bottom pair, you could have a combination of either Caden Gooley, Jordan Harris, Chris Weidman will probably play on that third pair. Um, There are, you know, there's a lot of kind of unknown on the third pair. The Canadians, Ken Hughes has been pretty clear. He doesn't want, rookies to be taking too much of a load this year. Um, but, you know, Corey, you might see Corey Schooneman at times, uh, Otto Leskinen. I mean, there's all sorts of guys who will be shuttling back and forth between Laval and Montreal playing on that third pair. Uh, and maybe even that might, that might even happen to Justin Barron. But I think right now the top four pairings look like Edmondson and Barron with Savard and Matheson. So I think Matheson's going to get – I mean, honestly, from a fantasy perspective, this might be the one interesting scenario because, you know, the, the season Mike Matson had last year in Pittsburgh was uh, was by far the best of his career. I mean, it was, and, and it was really, um, 
not just in the production. I mean, it was from a production standpoint, but it was also just from a, a stature standpoint. I think people in Pittsburgh were disappointed that he was traded, that he had to be included in that deal. And, you know, I think Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon deserve some credit for, for, for insisting on that. Uh, Matheson was formerly a Kent Hughes client. Uh, Hughes is actually the GM who negotiated his monster deal that he's halfway through right now. The eight year deal he signed with, with Florida back in 2017. Um, but he's a guy from a fantasy perspective. Like I could see a scenario where now he'll be given more opportunity on the power play. He'll be kind of the guy, which is probably a role that doesn't suit him, but he'll be given opportunity to produce. And, you know, he had, you know, 31 points in 74 games last year, 11 goals. Uh, he has offense in him, you know, it just, it's taken a while for it to come out and it's, it's possible that given more opportunity, um, he might produce at a level where he becomes somewhat fantasy relevant, I would think. Yeah, well, hey, if he got a 34-point pace last year playing less than 19 minutes a game, so if he could get up yeah. to like 22, 23 minutes and keeps the same rate, yeah, that all of a sudden becomes interesting. Do you think he's the front runner also to run the top power play? Last year I saw Chris Weidman was, like when he wasn't being scratched, he was often on the top power play uh, because like, there's some exciting players that we've talked about, Suzuki, Caulfield, maybe Slavkovsky. Like, I, you know, we've, we've gone through the yeah. list. Like, So that defenseman could be interesting too. Do you think that it's Matheson that's the front runner right now or you see someone else taking that job uh well i think if weidman is in the lineup he probably has the inside track he's he's not he's he's more of a quarterback than uh a shooter you know i mean he's he's really someone who distributes the puck really well gets pucks on net uh doesn't necessarily have a bomb but gets pucks to areas where goals could be produced um is decent on zone entries it's not the greatest but but once the puck's set up in the zone uh, I think that's something. I think that's something that actually does really well. And frankly, there's no reason to have Chris Weidman in the lineup if he's not on your power play. It's basically the way I kind of see it. So if he's in there, he'll probably get a good amount of power play time. I don't know how many points he'll get on the power play, but I mean Matheson, PP two is definitely a possibility. They use Barron. They use Justin Barron in that spot later in the season as well. Uh, so I think there's going to be a little bit of competition, but the defense is such is is. is there's so much flux there that I don't even think the Canadians are hundred percent sure how they're going to run that. But I think Madsen is going to be given every opportunity uh, to win that job. And, and frankly, if, if, if Weidman's not able to secure a lineup spot on a nightly basis, on a consistent basis, then yes, the Matheson is the next, the heir apparent, I guess, to that, to that role. Right. At least for now. And then maybe Caden Gooley is Caden Gooley. Do you think like the, top defenseman of the future it's just like maybe not next year but is he like the top prospect yeah yeah he's i mean he's not you know the amount of offensive upside in his game is still unknown i think he showed some really encouraging signs this season in terms of the the development of his offensive game he's always been a power play quarterback in junior uh there's been some question as to whether he could do that in the nhl uh that'll be interesting to, to monitor but yeah for sure he is definitely the best defense prospect his his stock has risen since he got drafted for sure um i think he's a really impressive player i spent a week following him around uh, back in november um spent time in prince albert before he got traded uh watched him play in edmonton watched him play in red deer and just the way he the way he interacts with his teammates the way his coaches talk about him 
the things he does on the ice, he has like an, an, a scary mean streak to him. Like he's, I watched, they were kind of getting run around in Red Deer. Like Red Deer was not only beating them on the scoreboard, but they were physically beating them. And at one point in the third period, Caden Gooley just had, he'd had enough of it. And he just absolutely destroyed this guy. And I thought he was about, he was about this close to really taking a guy's head off. Like he was just angry and he was like, and, and that put an end to the Red Deer was not running around anymore. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, so, but yeah, but off from, from an offensive standpoint, like he's definitely top four of the future. I think this year he showed that he does have the potential to become a top pairing defenseman, but you know, we're going to have to see how he makes this transition, but I would, his game really trans to me watching his game translates really well to the NHL. I can't see him needing that much time, if any, in the AHL. Cool. Yeah. So maybe we'll get to see some of him also with the Habs next year, man. Arvind, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like I could just keep throwing questions at you, but you've been so generous with your time. So I guess I'll, I'll let you go here, but yeah, I'm sure there's lots of Habs fans listening that probably already know who you are and follow all of your work. But for those few that aren't, do you want to let them know the best way to keep up with everything you're doing? Uh, yeah, you could go to the athletic.com. Um, follow the Canadians in both English and French to get um, access to my work and that of my esteemed colleague, Marc-Antoine Godin. You can find me on Twitter at ARPNBASU, A-R-P-O-N-B-A-S-U, which is where all my work gets posted as well. And um, yeah, that's about it. Okay, well, yeah, thanks so much again for coming on the show. And I guess, should I say good luck to the Habs next year? Or more like good luck in terms of development, but not necessarily in the standings? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how they do. Uh, I think you know. I think they'll be they'll be closer to the team we saw in the second half than the than the one in the first half. So, it won't be quite a raging tire fire, but it could be like smold, a smoldering sort of a smoldering pile of tires, if okay. you will. It's, it's yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how they do. But I think there's there is a lot of potential for for some some foundation being laid. You know, for for what they hope will be a competitive team in two to three years. Right, yeah. And a lot of intriguing storylines, at the very least, to keep us entertained. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thanks again, and, yeah, have a great rest of your day. All right. See you a lot. Thank you.